Hello, and welcome back, everyone. This is Cindy Silva. I'm here with Jeannie Zandi for part two of a three-part conversation on the heroine and hero's journey. Welcome, Jeannie. Thank you again for being here. Thank you, Cindy. Great to be here. Yay. I've been looking forward to this, and um, yeah, just lots of pieces have emerged since part one in this spaciousness between that call and this call, this conversation, and um, I wanted to really reveal that I had made an assumption about the dark night of the soul and the hero, heroine's journey um, being synonymous, especially in this part two, where we're going into the unknown, and I I wanted to put that on the table to make some bring some clarity to that, and I think you're the perfect person to help me kind of sift out the differences of what you were pointing to last time and that um, your experience of the dark night wasn't, it's not a choice like in the call to adventure in the hero's journey. Sometimes we choose to move from the known into the unknown and there are times where we're not choosing that consciously and are plunged into an experience. So um, I'd like to open the conversation there and see what you might have to add to that. About choice and no choice? Yeah. You know Yeah, well, this is a really interesting, it's a really interesting kind of theological topic um, that people are always discussing the difference, you know, is there free will, isn't there free will, where does it operate, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we're pointing our boat into a paradox whenever we talk about free will because at one level, how do I say, it's like when we're sitting in looking out of a sense of separate self on earth and all that kind of thing, we can definitely experience the the feel of choosing things, you know, choosing to have Chinese instead of pizza or choosing to go to college, these kind of things. And then at another level, uh, we can see that everything is an organic single movement of the expression of the divine and and we're all simply its mouths, its fingers. (laughs) But uh, I know for at least the dark night of the soul, it's sort of like, wow, where are we making a choice from? What are we courting? What are the aspects of ourselves? Because, for example, we can... We can unconsciously, let's say, um, avoid dealing with our lives in a, cer- in a certain way. We've all, I think, had the experience of living and um, feeling something sort of haunting us or pulling us maybe out of a relationship or away from a sort of work or toward something, and we ignore it because we're afraid, and we're kind of unconscious there. And then we end up manifesting the thing through our indirect behavior. So we might be in a relationship and wanting to leave the relationship, but none of nothing in us knows how or even lets that be conscious. So then let's say we have an affair with someone or something, and it's almost like our subconscious choosing for us to wreck our boat and move it in a different direction when we couldn't consciously make that choice. And so with the dark night of the soul, uh, there isn't a, a choosing. I think I'll. I think I'll now have a dark night of the soul and go into the unknown kind of thing from the conscious mind. Even though we may say a conscious prayer, like I said, a conscious prayer, um, give me nothing that I want, uh, which you know flies in the face of the whole um, mastery and um, manifesting sort of way of approaching spirituality, because it, my soul, the heart of my discovery was one of being mastered as a separate sense of self and being subsumed or conquered, conquered and subsumed um, by a power greater than myself, as the 12-step programs would call it. And so even though we may be courting with our lives and our spiritual practice um, the deconstruction of the sense of separate self and everything that goes into that, 
we may not know what we're actually asking for. And when it visits, it's not, I guess I'll take the dark night of the soul bus at 2 p.m., Bob. No, I think I'll wait for the the bus next week. You know what I'm saying? It's like the part of us that can choose that, in a way, can't choose that. How do I say? Because it's such a challenge to the egoic aspect of ourselves whose roots is in the creature's desire to survive. Um, The die before you die is an experience by the security-seeking part of ourselves as a threat to our very existence. And so that egoic aspect cannot choose its own death. It's like, uh, you know, uh, seeing maybe a a badger fighting for its life and suddenly the badger just says, yeah, kill me. <laughs> you know, like the animal part, it's the pinnacle, the, the highest value um, in the sort of animal world is, is to survive and to procreate. It's not to realize the self and be an expression of eternal love, which transcends life and death. And so the darkness of the soul is something that has granted the soul from the divine without any choice, without any, you know, it, it, no one, um, how do I say this, people who are visited by the darkness of the soul may not have even had any spiritual thought whatsoever or may not have even know about something called the dark night of the soul. Um, And yet there are certain souls, it seems, who have a kind of kamikaze maturity that says um, it it, it courts danger. It swims in deep waters. It it goes and sees spiritual teachers who have a deconstructive force on us. It steps away from the secure into the adventurous or the unknown um, in life time after time but there's always in human beings some aspect that's quaking in its boots the animal aspect is quaking in its boots as the foolish heart or the passionate heart keeps courting disaster <laughs> um, yeah so I think we can have an orientation toward that kind of holy danger just as souls whereas another being might be just working so hard to keep their security in place. And, you know, who can value either one of those more highly when the mystery of the evolution of souls and what we're up to in a given lifetime is really a mystery? And it could be that someone needs a life where they're just establishing kind of a safe sense of of home and the ground of the familiar, Um, you know, could we call them young souls or old souls? You know, a lot of that is just mysterious why we have the assignments we have when we, when we come to earth, why one being, you know, is, um, I'm sorry about that, that these sounds, let me see if I can do something like that. Um, There, that should take care of that. that. That's all just so mysterious to me, why why some beings, for example, live six years, experience abuse and famine, and leave leave the planet. And other beings come to the planet, have a full life, manifest lots of cool things, seem to be happy with their family and their work. You know, and then there are those of us who, as far back as we remember, have felt, you know, a, a Rumi can, sometimes calls it a sickness and says God is the only cure like a holy sickness that we cannot call it good until the entirety of what we believe ourselves to be as a separate self is completely dissolved in the holy and it's done. There's just a sense of it's done. So I don't know if that gets at your question, but let me know what you've got going on over there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think it's just a great platform to to launch the conversation from because I wanted to 
make sure that um, there's some clarity as we enter into this topic of going into the unknown and um, some do it like you say willingly they have an adventurous spirit a courageous wanting like you say the um, dangerous prayers of uh, you know let me be your instrument whatever the cost so that would be going in awake some to some degree and then um, the alternative it's um, which I feel is happening like in large scale on our planet where so many people are going through a deconstruction but don't have any the language like we're using to reference the framework for the experience so hopefully this conversation will help bring um, some light to that what does come up as I'm listening to you is something we've talked about in previous conversations regarding the topic of the thief and there's a benevolent thief you titled one of your CDs um, by that name, and then we also talked about the malevolent thief, and I've heard you speak to that in terms of um, when you were going through your process and you actually confronted something within yourself that was uh, basically threatening um, you in the way of saying that you would die without it, and there's this thing that's like um, stealing our life force by um, getting us to believe in stories and feeding off of our emotional um, sense of overwhelm. And when we stop believing in the story and, and be with what's present and real and and true to that, it loses its grip on us in a way that we begin to see through it and then it becomes desperate and even more aggressive. I'm really experiencing that in my own life and seeing others and I'm seeing it on a large scale in our world uh, globally as uh, consciousness is shifting and awareness is dawning. The the powers that have um, been in control and manipulation are seemingly getting more uh, aggressive. So if there's anything in there that you'd like to... Yeah, um... yeah sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it's so exciting, you know, in a way, because uh, <laughs> it's like when we move out of just accepting that what's on the cultural menu is the whole story and just being secure is the whole story, we enter into a kind of a lived adventure that many people only... Uh, dance with when they go to the movies. <laughs> you know, we love movies with the dark and the light and the heroes and the and you know the, the vanquishing the dark and all that kind of thing. And, and um, truly, um, it's it's because that is a mythical archetypal um, actuality of what human life can be that we are literally. Um, instead of being satisfied with just flowing along in the conditioned offering, um, that that our soul actually draws us into a deeply meaningful, deeply alive um, reckoning with the forces in our own psyche. The you know uh, Freud talked about you know a life a life impulse and a death impulse, and Jung certainly covered this a lot, and the ancient myths, you know, have these themes, um, and you can see things in Christianity with, you know, the Leviathan or the, you know, the, um, uh, there's like St. Michael with some kind of dragony snake, um, and then, you know, in Sufism, there's the Nafs, the, the creaturey part of us that, the creature that wants to survive, that is just simply in nature in a very pure form, in us is slightly more complex because in as we grow, uh, the simple creaturey um, 
forces in us, drives in us, get linked with, um, through not being embraced and allowed to be conscious and having conscious outlets for them. So, for example, uh, young boys wrestling with each other and their fathers and, uh, I mean, young girls as well. I can clearly remember a great wrestling session I had with uh, my niece where um made, you know, the whole family uncomfortable that I was holding space for my niece's murderous rage <laughs> because she lived in a family where, you know, no, none of that was allowed to be expressed. And so it, these these forces live in all of us and they, they start out kind of simple. You know, you see a little child, give me that, you know, or whatever. If we don't make friends with these forces early and allow them constructive expression and instead repress them, we what we do is we we layer a kind of egoic structure on the top of repressed drives, creature drives. And part of the whole point of the egoic structure is actually to repress um, creature drives that are experienced after conditioning as bad and needing to be sent to the basement. And then part of the egoic structure is the disguising of those drives, the weird shadow expression of those drives because, you know, steam in a pressure cooker has to be let out somehow. And Nazi Germany was a big expression of that sort of thing. Um, so uh, to me, the forces of the repression of awakening or life or goodness or love are the forces of fear and they are the forces of our collective disowned shadow and creature drives that we are now, they, when they are sent to the underworld because they are, you know, it's like um, Max in uh, Where the Wild Things Are, you know, he has to have dreams of sailing to a land where he makes friends with these monsters because his mother has sent him to his room for the, his fierceness getting a little out of hand, you know. And uh, they they gather strength. They go a bit to the dark side. When something isn't embraced into love and into consciousness and into light, that is a valid um, force of life, Animal drives are valid forces of life. They have the force of life behind them. They are not going to get killed off. They're going to express themselves. And in their banishment, they start expressing themselves in a way that doesn't include consciousness. They're imbalanced. They're not woven into the heart. They're raw, creaturey drives that have grown fat and surly in there. And as a culture, when we, and you can see this, you know, when I work with people, there's often a dance, and I think relationship includes this dance. Anything that includes love or commitment includes the dance with the dragon. Um, that we have to be very tender and careful as we um, sort of uh, blow our horn of light that we get to know that the heart will be attracted to that light, the creature will also be attracted to that light and be terrified by that light because that light calls them up to consciousness. It calls our consciousness to be aware of these disowned animal drives and they tremble. They, they, they show their horrible teeth. They gnash their terrible teeth, you know, like in the, where the wild things are and roar their terrible roars because being seen having those energies acknowledged in our psyches is linked with being bad, banishable. And so unconsciously, when the light calls the dark up to join life, the creature thinks it's going to die. It's going to be mishandled. It's going to experience the same banishment as it experienced when all that was banished. And so absolutely in the human psyche and then we see it played on the stage um the the fight of the cornered animal that lies at the bottom of the ego as its attempts to get good and get safe through collecting things and the status quo and things as they, they've always been and overconsumption it's like we are pulling on what they feel is their lifeline, 
their cover, their disguise, their safety, their cave. Um, and they they bare their teeth. They don't want to die. They don't want to come into the light and be attacked like they remember being attacked before. And because this is all unconscious, the adult part of us and the lit part of us, even in very spiritual people, the dark part is not in conversation with the light part. And so we can see very dark behavior coming out of the shadow of very spiritual people because by definition, what lives in the dark is not in consciousness yet. And so, and it will kill. It will fight to the death to not emerge in the light. And uh, when working with people, this is why it's so important to not just pursue the transcendent, but to also keep pace with our human embodiment, with the shadow, with our ability to be present and simple in the moment, to be uh, virtuous, to be honest, and also to have this, because that gives us the strength, the flexibility, and the resourcing to maybe take on some of the scarier things that live in us. Um, And if they are called out, called on, cornered, um, etc., without building trust, they will fight the very hand that looks to feed them in, in, in themselves and outside themselves. So it, it takes to take on the shadow in someone else, either in relationship, in friendship, in psychological work, on the world stage, in activism. We have to become almost like geniuses of dancing with dragons and geniuses in our own allowance that we carry that too and that it can creep into our nicest and purest of motives um, because truly it's, it's, it's love that lets these creatures come up from the dark and rest, but it has to be skillful because the creature as it comes up mistrusts everyone. It doesn't know friend. And so something that looks like has open arms and is inviting it into the lap of love to those parts just looks like something that wants to abuse and and threaten their very well-being. So it's really something and it's completely, I, I feel like there's a lot of naivete around spirituality, even around psychology and the light and the dark and the, the romantic um the romanticization of the spiritual path, that it's all about light, um, without a deep and sober acknowledgement of the human shadow and the creature's role uh, in our in building an ego and the creature's role in allowing that structure that keeps the creature feeling like it's safe, um, allowing that to soften and dissolve. It's it's um. It's heavy-duty, like, solemn stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is. um, It takes courage and presence, and I'm finding, like, I feel like a lot of the confusion and entanglements we're experiencing in our present time it's like if we're if we're toxic on a physical level and we're unhealthy, we have to clean up our diet. And when we're toxic on a psychic level, if you will, we have to clean up our projections because what we're not willing to feel and face in ourselves, we project onto others. And when we're projected onto and we take it personal, then we're missing the point or the opportunity, I should say, um, is what it's pointing at is something we're not owning in ourselves. And there can be situations where that's not always the case, but um, certainly if it's repeated pattern, it's something to look at. But I love how you're bringing the dragon in um, multiple angles, and it makes me want to reference the movie Avatar where, you know, the initiation takes place and he has to go up and um, 
encounter the dragon, and I love that rather than going down into the hell realms to encounter it, he has to climb up these really steep cliffs, and basically it's a life-threatening journey, and finding the ledge that the dragons are um, resting upon and encountering it and studying it, and um, this dragon really wants to kill him, and he has to approach it in a way where it... um, he can make a bond with it, and then it becomes his best and greatest ally, where now he is traveling in dimensions um, beyond what he was able to before, and instead of yeah. being in the pursuit of a life based on his own interest and desires, he's now in a life of service to the mythical you know, fight between um, the light and the dark, and he's in service to something greater than himself. So I, I like that you bring that in, and I feel that that's um, our creativity is is waiting there to be reclaimed. It's a reclamation of our fullness, our wholeness, as you say, and our um, capacity as an instrument for these mythical um, stories to unfold and and the archetypes of, of great value and service to um, be given a doorway into our world and the perspective that they carry for service to humanity. Yeah, you know, the um, the final picture of the Zen ox herder pictures has the little Buddha riding back into the marketplace on a tremendous ox with no rain. Mm. And so um, there's all this thing about defeating the dragon and, you know, St. Michael with the sword and all, and the ways that we have come at, for example, the white colonizers coming at um, people of color as something to be dominated and conquered instead of something to befriend. We have an ancient legacy of wanting to kill off the shadow in the name of good. But that very movement is a shadow movement. Um, and, and those who want to kill off the shadow in the name of good are incredibly, throughout history, self-righteously doing it in the name of the holy when it is one of the most evil expressions um, of because it disguises itself as holy um, but it's like it's not just outright evil and it's not just outright simple creature drives that in nature are just blessed like who can who can blame my cat for following her biology in the way that she hunts and torments rodents you know we can't say Mm -hmm. what a mean pity she's following the evolution of her creature self and who knows the source of the ways that they play with their prey. Um, But even like a lion sinking its teeth into an antelope, it's like the lion is trying to feed its babies, right? And that's a pure animal drive. The subverted animal drive uh, turns into a real almost, um, I think, pleasure in the pain of others thinking that one is besting and conquering one's own shadow by besting and conquering what we've projected it on, which are generally innocent beings. Um, And so this befriending, you know, it's now coming into uh, psychology and spirituality in a really beautiful way. Um, I'm thinking of, um, you know, uh, I can't remember her name, who has... uh, a book about um, feeding your demons, you know, and um, the whole way that I approach my work is absolutely to make friends with everything, but the first step toward trend make, friend making is not sending something valentine, you know, valentines. It's actually allowing the agenda-less, judgment-less, quality of our noticing presence to simply notice things, notice things. Um, Because as things are noticed, that's the first step of making any kind of a friend is to actually notice and acknowledge the being's existence. Um, And so in this way, without agenda, without, oh, I'm going to just love myself, you know, it's more like, yeah, good luck with that when separation and hate live so deeply inside. How about just noticing self-hate? 
How about just noticing the squishy nature of the creature as that self-hate rises in the body um, and actually uh, pulling every agenda, both the I'm going to kill this off as well as the I'm going to love this back to whatever, to trust in the organic nature that, that God is present in our consciousness and that noticing presence is all the love that we need for the alchemical transformation to happen of disowned things dropping into the unconscious and turning a little bit surly, they're all just wanting love. They're all just wanting to come back to the feast table and they have utterly forgotten that that's a possibility for them if they ever even knew it. Um, so I find that the solution to many of our societal and personal and relational ills is all about bringing awareness to actually what is. And we can only hold a space for friend-making to the degree that we have made friends. And there are layers and layers and layers of where we can even think we're doing good work and still be carrying an agenda of getting somewhere that in itself is violent and perpetuates separation. So the best work in holding space to make friends happens by beings who have been absolutely raised to the ground and awoken as emptiness because in their being is a lack of agenda, a lack of needing to go anywhere, a complete embrace of things as they are, and then they can lend that embrace, that total chill coolness with the gnarliest aspects of humanity um, to the seeing uh, of these places that mostly won't come up out of consciousness until they feel a love that's that empty and sturdy. So we, we need friend-making in every direction to the best of our capacity um, to solve what's happening on our earth because the source of all of it is this alienation of self that is then projected outward as the oppression of peoples and the rape of the earth and everything else. Mm-hmm. Oh, so much coming up in what you just shared. And I just want to take a breath and hmm, let us all pause in that. Because the, the thing I can share from personal experience of being introduced to the being with what is and inviting awareness of what is through presence and sensation is that it's so foreign in our culture, so natural, but yet so foreign as a practice because we've been conditioned away from it. And it feels so good to do it for me, and yet there's still this aspect that wants to um, rise up and out and get busy and get active and and follow the... Um, impulse to be a somebody or something and um but as i do get pulled up and out and go adventure and um follow the direction of what i'm attracted to it always leads me back to that sitting being present with what is and arising the message keeps coming back to that no matter how often I get up and, and move away from it and wherever I go, it's always at this point in my life bringing me back to that. And the thing that you've said that's really helped me and makes so much sense is that it's the place where we're not trying to fix, change, or heal anything. And what I'm hearing you say is that's where these parts that have gone in hiding and um, feel... Um, the safety of maybe being um, brought back into the light, um, being met and acknowledged when you're not trying to, um, as you mentioned, have an agenda in relationship to what's mm -hmm. arising, yeah. but just noticing. Well, 
Yeah. So the aspects that have um, been disowned are linked to very fine creaturey um, per- perceptive capacities. So you can see, for example, a deer hear a sound and up goes her head, a doe, and then her ears are out, her nose is going, what is that thing? And where, where that, those, those places that fall into the unconscious have felt that their very lives were in danger, that they could not stay in the light. So um, a little boy or little girl's ferocious fierceness at their parents often draws a level of disapproval, banishment, go to your room violence that convinces the child that embodying that level of fierceness will really get them left out in the cold with no food or, you know, beaten senseless or whatever. Whatever those energies of disapproval hold energetically, the creature in the child says, hide this to survive. Those aspects of us are incredibly sensitively tuned to the energies coming toward them. And the energy of being, of having an agenda, is the energy of being lifted up. It's the energy of separation out of oneself, discontent with the moment, having to make something better, rejecting things as they are. It's, it, they are the roots of violence. And the creature quality in us can sniff that at 100 yards. And um, I've often joked with some of the people that I've worked with that, um, people who have experienced trauma are the greatest sniffers of pure heart because nothing else will do. Anything but a genderless pure heart coming toward them gets the survival thing going. And so they are great sniffers for for agenda. And the the deepest aspects of us, the ones that hold the keys to our deepest healings, to our deepest healing, are that sensitive so that nothing but true peace, which is true emptiness, which is true uh, divine love that will sit outside the cave singing love songs to something forever without requiring it to come out of the cave. That level Mm. of no agenda is the only light soft and safe and sturdy enough for some of the aspects to venture out into the light to be healed. And, um, mm. you know, I, I moved go back to this experience I had with a very beautiful, very wild dog uh, in Taos, New Mexico. I was at my then mother-in-law's house, um, and we spotted this dog, and we were all just loving this dog. He was out in the sagebrush, sort of interested in us, but wouldn't come close. And you could tell he was hungry, um, but he'd been abused. He was just scared. And uh, I sat out there with some meat, like four hours, just with this meat, like loving this dog and not moving a muscle. And eventually, you know, closer and closer, the dog would come and run, come and run, see me move or breathe and run. Closer and closer, really wanted the meat, really didn't want to be caught or hurt. And it was this beautiful dance of this just, I was utterly embodying this kind of, I am and I have meat. And that's all. No attempt to pet, attempt to grab, nothing. Just complete, offered, agendaless, generous heart. And uh, eventually um, befriended the dog. And now the dog is like her lap dog. He lives with her and, you know, has no sign of his former wildness. But any, you can feel the move. Any wanting on my part, any wanting to move the moment forward to have a premature reunion to grab, to pet, to own, to, you know, to to win. <laughs> uh, the dog smells that and runs. It's got to be on the dog's terms. Um, and those terms are, I need to know I'm safe and won't be harmed. And the places in us that have fallen to the unconscious really do not know, friend. Just the presence of another human being um, implies that we may be 
we may be hammered like we were hammered. And um, it's very beautiful in my experience to watch the power. I call it yin, the, the aspect of us that softens every impulse to grab, to do, to go out, softens into this kind of deep abiding in receptive divine love. Um, watching how when those parts of us feel instinctively that depth of safety and open-armed embrace, how the, the alchemical magic of transformation happens. It's as though we bring alive and bring to bear the wisdom and the depth and the power of the womb of the womb's capacity of that deep, dark, fertile, organic magic at the core of life. Mm. Such a softening, an invitation to softening and in people listening might be just hearing you for the first time and not familiar with some of your teachings and um, if you didn't get a chance to tune into the first conversation, part one of this three-part series, um, I want to point you to Jeannie's website. It's com, where you can find out more about what she offers and things on her website, retreats. And one of the things that have always um, helped me in a takeaway I had from the retreat I attended with you a few years ago was about the creature itself, like the distinction that the body is a creature, it's an animal, it has instincts, and um, when we don't relate to it as such, um, and we don't really fully understand it as um, and its needs there's there's it's going to be a difficult um merger if you will because yeah. we're addressing the body as a something that we don't understand i'd love to hear you speak to the the reason that you refer to body as a creature and mm-hmm. creature how yeah like as as a um a fondness and an affectionate way and not something to um beat into submission but as you mm-hmm. mentioned the, the magic and the wisdom that um it it brings and um before we go there i just it keeps coming up to say it's not a popular um topic to address and we don't have to really talk about it but it's so obvious in how when um for example in the church when we suppress our natural instinct of the creature a sexual urge and we we banish it and um then it comes up in a distorted way that as you mentioned it's um affecting the innocence of other people because we've not um owned and um, embodied that aspect of the creature, we made it bad, and um, it's now having. It still will be expressed, but in a distorted way that um, is affecting lives of the innocent. And so, yeah. I don't know how yeah. we weave that in, but it, it's the the price. You know, that's a good example of the price we pay when we don't um, honor yeah. the natural instincts of what um, we're actually uh, traveling in as a vehicle. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to talk about any old dark subject any day of the week because... <laughs> <laughs> I can always count on that. <laughs> that's where the rubber hits the road. You know, we can all skip and, and laugh and soupy dance and smile and hug each other, but, like, how are we with our 
you know, with traffic and how are we when our livelihood is threatened and, you know, all that. Like, it's very easy, for example, to think of oneself as not racist when one has a bank account full of money. <laughs> but then if you're competing uh, with some people of color for a particular job to feed your children, let's see what drives and what repressed junk comes up in you then, you know. So I love the gnarly aspects because I feel like that's where the true learning and lessons are. And I just want to say that, you know, um, sexual predation and perpetration and um, pedophilia and all these other things are not simply the repression of drives. Um, they are also the result of tremendous abuse um, that has slipped into the unconscious. And it's quite amazing to see. And um, I haven't seen this firsthand myself, but I've seen this um, in the stories of others, many stories, that people who perpetrate incredible abuse actually have no conscious awareness of it. The the power of the unconscious to repress actual experience is unbelievable. And so, yes, it is a form of what we're talking about, but it's not simply repression. It's also abuse. And I want to say that the answer to these things is not then the freewheeling, um, you know, who cares about morality expression of our animal drives, or, or we would have, you know, uh, for example, Sophia's little friend Jake, I always use this example, when he used to want to get her attention because he didn't have refined verbal skills or emotional skills at the time, when he felt like she wasn't responding to him and he wanted her, he would just bunk her in the head with his Tonka truck. And it was in, an essentially innocent thing. What we need to do and and what I've, you know, how I parented and how I play with people um in the work that I do, is that the essential drives, the essential energy is blessed as a natural thing. And then we get to look at how do we allow that to be expressed in our lives in a way that doesn't hurt anyone, in a way that's not selfish, um, in a way that's balanced. And when these drives have gone underground and grown fat and hungry, um, they result in incredible uh, self-serving, um, survival of the fittest kind of expression. Like, you know, um, the whole thing that's happening between women and men in the Me Too movement is just like a, a classic example of repressed healthy drives and mistreatment and unconsciousness and the resulting insensitivity uh, resulting in a lot of selfish oblivious behavior. Um, and so uh, a, a little person, let's say my daughter's throwing rocks because she loves to throw and she's too little to know that throwing rocks toward a window is not going to end well, um, suggesting to a child, and this takes a little bit more time and it takes a very conscious parent to say throwing rocks is so fun. Let's Let's throw some rocks over here. Or breaking stuff is really fun. How about we get this cheap dozen eggs? I learned this from somebody in my work who said this is the most marvelous expression for, for rage. She goes out um, by a tree in the back of her yard with a bunch of eggs and just hurls them at the tree. And the, the satisfaction of hurling and having something break, that's just like, in, in a way, basic fierceness satisfaction, you know what I'm saying? Like boys love to to run with sticks and see what they can whack with because that that is the the young young in us wanting to interact with the world. And so we need to bless that energy because that energy actually then integrates into a marvelous, fierce warrior ability to act for the defense of the beautiful and to be creative. Um and so when it's repressed, it just turns into a voracious, oblivious animal. Um, and we just need some consciousness and some tweaking in our parenting styles because what we have, what we've, what we've been handed, the legacy of our culture is 
there is good behavior and there's bad behavior. And when the bad behavior happens, the child is being bad, and we need to shame them for that bad behavior so they know what's bad and they don't do it and praise them for the good behavior. But all that does is send a lot of healthy energies that are just immature and needing some true guidance down into the unconscious to grow fat and stupid and selfish and then act out in our world. So uh, the creature to me, this is the beauty of the human being. This is the the wedding of heaven and earth that Ibn Arabi talks about when when God made the human, God wed heaven and earth and said angels bow to this. It's a miracle. We are a miracle. We are meant to plumb the depths of this interesting koan of being a hybrid of the animal kingdom and the angelic kingdom. And how do these things come together in peace in the body? How does light come into flesh? How do we find a way, a virtuous and righteous way, to not be at war with our creature aspect, to not disown the angelic aspect, but to have them be in healthy conversation. And so, yes, our bodies are creatures. They are absolutely no different than any other creature in the animal kingdom. And getting to know the growls and the hungers and the fierceness and the need for safety and all of that, and I don't mean getting to know mentally. I mean knowing through letting attention actually sink into our felt embodiment to really uh, know in the biblical way by making love to. In other words, by being intimately acquainted with through felt experience, through actual experience, what is it? What is fierceness and ferociousness like? If I turn toward it and I let it be in my body, what does it have to sort of... Um, um, word, uh, transmit to my cells that allows this hybrid to integrate the beauties of all of its parts so that everything is in balance, everything is where it should be, and we can feel and express. I was saying to, uh, I had a women's meeting yesterday, um, and we were talking about this kind of disown, this rage that women have um, through having to have eaten so much shit for centuries. And uh, I, was, I was talking to this woman as we were exchanging. I said, do you feel the growl in my voice as I'm talking to you? And I can feel it right now. Do you feel like the depth of my voice? I'm talking from my belly, from having explored and owned the creaturey aspect so that it's integrated. It's actually an element of our power, of our embodied power, that our voice has a depth and a timber that includes fierceness and that that fierceness can be called on if we need to set a boundary or go in a certain direction or or you know it each one of these things that we embrace and know that integrates gives us another free access to the palette of humanity to our capacities our colors our abilities so that we can be here as full human beings in service to the beautiful uh, without being at war with anything. Mm. Yes, my body is loving. My creature is loving this roar. Yeah, now I can. I can, I can. Yeah, I can feel the roar. I, I can feel it striking like a tuning fork inside of myself. And in my experience of entering into this phase of the heroine's journey and confronting the unknown, I've encountered an inner predatory um, energy that is natural. It's a natural aspect of our subconscious. And I I wanted to say I love that you uh, talk about the animal nature and before in the conversation, the fawn when or the doe when it hears a sound and its its ears and its instincts are just too so finely tuned into its environment, and I feel like in the natural world, as soon as an animal produces an offspring, that offspring you know is up on its feet as soon as possible, 
and tuned into the predatory forces for survival. It's tuned into the environment. It's tuned into its mother and her ability to tune in um, for the species to survive. It has to understand and um, know the scent of its predator and the sounds and the patterns. And I feel like in our culture, what we're facing as a species um, and not connecting to our animal nature, our creature nature, is that we don't teach our offspring about the predatory forces that um, we're encountering every day. And and they're invisible in a lot of ways, they're coming through the media and through um, the different chains of what um, of all the agendas that are um, projected at our life force to um, profit from whatever we want to, um, whatever they're selling, so we'll become consumers. And so these predatory forces, I feel, are really inflated and um, have such a strong stranglehold on our youth, and it's it's seen as normal because it's become so pervasive and there's a quote, I can't remember who said it, but it has something to do with um, to be well-adjusted to an insane society yeah. is is mm-hmm. not a measure of health or something like that. And I feel like part of this um, becoming sane is facing the insanity and seeing the predatory forces and the, what's often called by um, Native Americans Latiko, the psycho-spiritual disease that uh, we've been inflicted with by being so disconnected from our creature and its connection to nature. That's what I've been brought to in my um, going into this phase of the journey and having to confront uh, within myself and integrate the creature aspect to um, a place where the relationship is whole and there's not a a wedge between the two aspects of heaven and earth within me that allows any occupancy for something other than the holy. Yeah, well said. <laughs> so speaking of the holy... Oh, yeah. go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm noticing the time. Um, okay, yeah. And I do have, do have something to get to. Um, okay, well, this is a perfect way to end. Um, just quickly, we talked about the um, malevolent thief. Now, um, if you could say just a couple things or whatever comes to you about the benevolent thief, how would you define that aspect? Oh, the benevolent thief is is the heart. It's the holy. It's the drive to wholeness that says, um, you know, anything that is not God is not necessary. And, um, you know, how I experience uh, the benevolent thief is that as we are, you know, it was just a term that came out in a guided meditation one day as I was talking about um, how the more we turn our boats toward the holy, toward virtue, toward opening, toward inquiry, uh, the more that things, we are just relieved of certain things that we thought we couldn't live without, that our dysfunctional patterns or structures or old beliefs or whatever, they just fade in the night or maybe life um, assembles itself in a way to relieve us of something we we dearly thought we absolutely had to have um and then you know we turn around it's gone we feel grief and fear and then we see that we're lighter for our journey we're more open and the ultimate theft is when the holy actually um in its deconstructive aspect uh relieves us of our sense of self our sense of separate self and, mm. and delivers us into um, a, a complete surrendered awareness of ourselves as an expression of of that. Mm. Awesome. So the, the, the benevolent thief is the one who comes in and 
removes everything that's not necessary and uh, clears the pathway to a more authentic relationship to the now and to the holy now, that which is Mm. seeking to absorb you into itself. Yeah, exactly. Thank thank you so much. This has been awesome, awesome (laughs) fun. And uh, we have one more. So I will be um, back with you, Jeannie, and our listeners for part three. And um, we'll be talking about um, return. And uh, I look forward to that part. And have a wonderful rest Mm -hmm. of your day. I really appreciate you making the time. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, Cindy. Okay, bye-bye, everyone. Bye.